Broadway for Sunday, August 18th, 2019. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today, we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Hello. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. So the three of us got a chance to see Seawall, A Life, uh, which is playing over at the Hudson Theater. So, Michael, why don't you start us off with Seawall? Yeah, I was I had mixed feelings about seeing these plays again, these two one act plays. Uh, I I you can't you can't really say enjoyed, can you? Um, they are both very very sad. Uh, these two plays that were originally done off Broadway at the Public Theater, uh, Seawall by Simon Stevens, uh, performed by Tom Sturridge in the role of Alex, and A Life by Nick Payne, performed by Jake Gyllenhaal in the role of Abe. And uh, so I really – and what, do you, what word do you use? Yeah, not enjoyed. I was glad I saw them, uh, very glad I saw them uh, for the quality of the writing and also the quality, the extremely – high quality of the performances of both of those actors when I saw it at the public. But because they are so sad, I didn't – I wasn't necessarily um, that enthusiastic about seeing them again. But I, I still thought, well, I, I should see if I get uh, anything else out of them and and if I have a different reaction the second time because I don't often get to see shows twice. Um, and there is a lot in them, even though each one is a monologue. Uh, but there's a lot of detail in each of these plays. And in a nutshell, the first one, uh, Seawall, is about this young fellow, Alex, who is a Brit guy. And he and his family, his, um, his wife and uh, his young daughter and his father-in-law are on holiday in the south of France or somewhere in France, and a um, a tragedy occurs. Uh, of course, I can't say any more. And he's he's narrating this to us, of course, after the fact. And it's really um, it's really very very affecting. And Tom Sturridge does a brilliant job of really characterizing this fellow and uh, showing us his his tremendous grief without 
ever once actually breaking down in tears or anything like that. So I think that's stellar acting. Um, quite similarly, uh, well, there are similarities in A Life by Nick Payne. Uh, Jake Gyllenhaal as Abe. Uh, in that case, he is um, telling us two stories simultaneously. He's telling us about the birth of his daughter and the slow death of his father. And he's shifting back and forth between the two. Um, so the two plays are about life and death, uh, and they do have similarities, but they also have many differences. Uh, in, in both cases, uh, I, you know, I think acting is is hard enough as it is, <laughs> uh, you know, to be a really good actor. But when you have no one to play off other than the audience, uh, and when you it's only you talking for forty five minutes or so, um, I, I would think that that is a is a great challenge. I I don't certainly don't know if I could do it. I never tried, <laughs> but I think it's fair to say that some people can and some can't. Uh, this show was, by by the way, was directed by Carrie Cracknell, and there I um, I, I I did notice again uh, in the staging some odd things. I would say almost Brechtian devices. Um, there are places where uh, the the actors walk out of the light purposely. Uh, there are places where they uh, suddenly will uh, uh, walk. Um, well, in in one case. Uh, Tom Sturridge enters and exits through the house and then uh, in, in his play and then in uh, in Jake Gyllenhaal's play, he at one point – well, actually two points – runs into the house uh, and in this case, he ran all the way to the back of the orchestra and around the back at the Hudson Theater and then ran around and then came back up on stage. Uh, but also there's a – point where he goes through mm. one of the rows and the and the, my funny story about that is when I saw it at the public uh, he chose my row uh, and I'm sure that the many people uh, you know <laughs> would be would be uh, mm -hmm. very happy to be in that position mm -hmm. but uh, and and in that case I was seated about halfway back at the uh, I guess it's the Newman theater is that right Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, no, no, no. I don't think so. Um, on Spotcher, I think. Oh, okay. well, again, I could be wrong, but I mean, yeah, I could be wrong too. Well, anyway, whatever theater it was, uh, the theater at the public was, uh, you know, it's a, just one slope of seats. It doesn't have a balcony, mm -hmm. so he didn't have to be worried about sight lines. So he chose about a, a row about halfway back to walk. Uh -huh. But now that it's uh, the, these plays are being done in the Hudson, which has about a mezzanine mm. and a balcony, mm -hmm. um, he had to use the very front row uh, so that people above could, you know, could still see him theoretically. Uh, so that's what he did. Uh, so that's a tip off if you uh, <laughs> if you can get tickets, I guess. Nah. You know, and if you want to be really, really close to Jake Gyllenhaal. Um, anyway, um, I, I I do uh, – I am glad I saw these plays again. I guess that they both have mm, – well, the second one I would say has more of a catharsis uh, in, in this this tale about uh, juxtaposing the birth of the daughter with the death of the father. Um, the first one is really much more of a – of a, of a very, very sad tragedy. And again, I, I, I really can't say more. I wish I could. Um, one thing I noticed that, uh, oh, two things. Um, both of these playwrights are British, but um, 
while Tom Sturridge uh, uses his native accent, his native British accent, and the story is is clearly still set in Europe, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal uses a completely American accent, and uh, it almost seems like this is a, is now an American story, even though Nick Payne, the playwright, is is also British. So I don't know if it was written uh, with maybe with British references and settings and they decided to Americanize it because it would be easy to do so and then Jake could use his natural accent. Uh, I have heard Jake do Brit in the past and I thought he did it very well. So I I would be curious to ask them about that. I I don't know if um, Jake Gyllenhaal has commented on this. There have been um, a lot, you know, several interviews that I've seen with him and Tom Sturridge about the plays. So I don't, but I, I, I didn't get to read uh, all of them, and so I don't know if he's commented on that. Uh, do either of you happen to know the answer to that question? I don't, but I wouldn't be surprised if the uh, intent was to make it more universal. Yeah, yeah, it could mm-hmm. be. Um, it could be. Uh, uh, then the only other thing I noticed, um, well, these plays, they could be viewed – they could be viewed as manipulative. Um, there are moments in them that are, are very, uh, you know, tear jerking and, you know, but that's that's very subjective. And so uh, each audience member will have to make up his or her mind. Uh, I, I did notice one thing that struck me as a bit of a flaw in uh, both plays. Uh, uh, in both plays, you have among the characters, um, the, the person's daughter and the person's wife. Um, both characters have a daughter and, and a wife. Uh, but while they're talking, uh, and, you know, it's not, it, the, the stories are not necessarily told in a linear fashion, uh, and especially the second one where Jake Paul mm-hmm. is going back and forth. Uh, and so he'll be talking, uh, you know, and then he'll say, uh, or Tom Sturridge will be talking, and then suddenly he'll say, she. And then he keeps talking, and it, 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 it's not immediately clear whether he's talking about the wife or the daughter. And I thought, well, you know, couldn't you just, um, you know, say her name and, mm-hmm. and, and, and remove that confusion from the audience? I thought it was unnecessarily confusing, and I wonder if they, they did that on purpose to make people listen more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, that's just a, a minor flaw that I, that I saw in both plays. Uh, but I think there was a lot of um, – profound content actually in both of them and i think they are beautifully written overall and certainly beautifully performed uh and it's great when people with the star power of jake gyllenhaal and to a lesser extent tom sturridge can uh get something like this on broadway all right peter what'd you think uh, <laughs> uh, to a lesser extent, Tom Sturridge, uh, that certainly was shown by the entrance applause that Jake uh, got and <laughs> lack of it that Tom got. Though, yeah. to be fair, he's on stage uh, at the beginning of the show when you're filing in, so maybe that's why that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe some nights they should reverse them and uh, see what happens there. That might be interesting. But, uh, well, Michael, yeah, it's not a summer show, is it? Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> There's no tap number. <laughs> no, there's no beach reading here. Um, so, um, but I, I do agree with uh, virtually everything you're saying here. Um, 
I, I did admire, too, as you say, that um, the actor did not uh, break down uh, while uh, detailing his tragedy because, as all good actors and directors know, if you don't cry, the audience will. So um, I thought that was very skillful. Yes, there is a feeling here of life goes on no matter what happens. And, uh, and um, although many people uh, in the audience will not have experienced the birth of a child, certainly everybody has a brush with death somewhere along the line and some people much sooner than they like and um so there's much there that we can all tie into in terms of the death in terms of the um the birth um there's also an issue in um the show i'm not going to say which play there's also an issue in the show um about uh the feeling of having one child and do you feel like you're betraying that child when you have a second child and that's that's food for thought because after all um parents are always telling the kids we love you the same and they should tell them that of course and they should feel that of course but um <laughs> on the other hand if um if a, a spouse came home and told the other spouse um i've got somebody else now but i love you just the same um the the spouse wouldn't understand terribly well and uh, would rail against it and yet children who have far less life experience have to deal with the issue of um, a sibling coming on the scene when um, the kid didn't necessarily expect it so this is um, an issue that's touched upon in the show and um, I think it's one that's uh, well worth exploring so um, so yes it's it's odd to see this on Broadway um, it's not your conventional Broadway production uh, and we all know that if indeed um, Jake were not in it, um, uh, that uh, they probably wouldn't have moved. And in the old days, when people could second act shows, uh, when ushers and uh, staff weren't as vigilant uh, as they are now, um, I do believe there'd be a lot of second acting of uh, a life uh, and the people would forego a seawall. But... Um, I do think that uh, Jake will live up to your expectations. And um, and if you don't know Tom Neely as well, uh, you're going to find that he's quite fine too. So uh, <laughs> this is a bitter cup of tea, but it may be a cup of tea. So um, I agree with everything that both of you have said, and uh, so there's no reason to rehash that. But I wanted to ask the two of you uh, some different questions about uh, this show. Uh do, do you think that they could have done it, uh, you know, with just one of these? Uh, I'm, I'm still not – I mean, obviously there's a through, run, through line between the two shows. Um, but it, it, I, I thought that it was uh, two different playwrights, two different actors. One, maybe they could have done this as one actor could have done both shows or they could have just done one of the oh. plays instead of both of the plays. I, I thought it was a, a strange choice to put these two <laughs> things together. I think I felt that it was uh, more um, commercially induced than artistically induced. Oh. Well, well, I think they have <clears throat> spoken about that and how that all happened. So if you if you uh, search, uh, you probably will find without too much difficulty. Uh, uh, in fact, recently there was an interview with Sturridge and uh, Hall. I think maybe it was in New York Magazine. Okay. Um, 
Yeah. So, uh, so, and I don't, I don't recall the details. But uh, one, they could not do one because it's just not long enough. Uh, so that would be a solution. But they could have uh, theoretically had one actor do both. That might have been really interesting. And actually, this goes back to my point about the um, the accents, uh, the Jake mm-hmm. Gyllenhaal's yeah. accent. And I think perhaps it would have maybe made the evening seem a little more cohesive if he had done a British accent as well. Or if I guess Tom Sturridge had done an American accent because it mm-hmm. just it just seemed like it made them seem all the more disconnected. Um, uh, so it wasn't a big deal, but I did notice that. Peter, what were you going to say? Oh, uh, no, I was just going to uh, reiterate the universality of it, uh, that I think that's a possibility, um, that that's what they were going for. And um, frankly, um, I I do think that audiences are more comfortable with American uh, rather than British accents. I I firmly believe if Matilda had been Americanized, it would still be running today. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. That the the British uh, accents really uh, had a lot of people having trouble um, understanding what was being said. So... um, I bet there was a sense of relief uh, and when Jake started talking um, <laughs> in a sound that uh, was uh, very much at home with, uh, with uh, at least much of the audience. So, so um, I don't think it was a bad decision to uh, have him uh, do that. But I, I also understand the point of view of um, making the, uh, the first play um, different from the second in that way, too. And um, I, I don't want to get used to the fact that so many shows are so short. Uh, the 90-minute show seems to be the norm now. And I know there is a segment of the population who feels ripped off. Um, when when a show is short. Um, Whether or not shows should be short or shouldn't be short is another thing entirely, but I know that people say, I paid all that money for X minutes, you know, and so um, so, uh, some years ago there was a Pinter play, was it No Man's Land? There was like 45 minutes or something like that, and um, I know there was a a lot of unhappy um, uh, contingency on that. So, um, I'm I'm fine with 2-1. It's amazing to me how many times I see one act plays now done alone where they used to be originally uh, <laughs> paired with something else immediately comes to mind Peter Schaffer's uh, Black Comedy, which is a very funny play. But when it was first produced, it was Black Comedy and White Lies, a different <laughs> play entirely. So um, but now Black Comedy seems to be it. So um, I, I, I hope we don't um, get used to um, shorter plays um, for that part of the audience that pays a lot of money. The, and Michael, you brought up the uh, uh, the point that I've been wrestling with all week is that mm-hmm. uh, in, uh, in trying to describe it to people, I, I've not been able to find the right word. Uh, enjoyed certainly yeah, isn't, yeah, isn't the right yeah. word. Yeah, uh, it's compelling. Oh, yeah. good. Good for compelling you. That's is great. Very very <laughs> good, good for you. Wonderful. Because I, I try to explain to people uh, at the end of Act One. I, I had to leave the theater. Mm. I, I yeah. thought I was gonna. I thought I was gonna throw up. Yeah, uh, it was so upsetting to me. But I I, but telling people that I was upset with it doesn't convey that I want them to go see it because I do want people to go see this show. I th- I 
I didn't see it at the public. I, I miss. I had an, an, an invite, and I didn't RSVP to it. I missed it in my email uh, because it was during the Tony Ward season, and it was a zoo. Uh, and so I didn't see it downtown. It's the first time I had seen it uptown in Midtown. And, um, and, and I really try to stay away from uh, anything that gets in depth to what the show is. So I, I really went in cold and I had no idea mm-hmm. what I was about to see. Mm-hmm. And like I said, the end of act one, I, I wasn't sure I could make it back for act two. Oh, you know, I do have an, a, a question that I'm, I'm, I almost forgot, but I really would love to ask both of you this yeah. and, and, and our listeners as well, if they see it. Um, at two points during Seawall, uh, Tom Sturridge's character says um, that he talks about the cruelest thing I ever said to anyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He mentions it early on, and then it, you think he's going to tell us what it was, and then he doesn't, and then he goes on. Uh, and then at the end, at the, almost at the very end of his monologue, he says it again, and then you think he's really, really, really just about to tell us what it is. And again, he pauses, and he doesn't tell us. And I'm wondering, I, I, and I assume the reason the playwright did that is because it's... What we imagine that he said is worse than anything, mm-hmm. you know, that yeah. that mm-hmm. he could. Do. But uh, I, I, my question is: Is it fair to do that to an audience? I don't think so. <laughs> no. Okay. Okay. I, 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 I think that it was so upsetting to him that he couldn't say it out loud. Oh yeah. No, absolutely. Yes. And, and I, I mean that it was a gut punch. Yes. It was, uh, you know, I, uh, like I said, I, I don't want to spoil it for anybody. So no, no, but no, we let, can't. You know, we but don't want to. I, I but, was waiting for the audience to go, oh, yeah. when he told us, uh-huh. and he didn't. Yeah. So. so maybe it was, maybe it was actually quite brilliant on the playwright's part. Michael, did you because, get this script? Uh, no, I, I got uh, the well, script from the. Uh, what does it say from there? The press reps. Uh-huh. I, I don't know off the top of my head. Uh, let me see if I can find it quickly. Let me see. See wall. Final press script. I mean, I guess actually, I probably probably did get it and and didn't get to read it. Uh, he says it three times. Wow, three times. You search for it. <laughs> yeah, I, ser- I search yeah. for it in the PDF. Yeah, and mm-hmm. and the last time is there a stage direction? Uh, I turned to him. This is the cruelest thing I ever did to anybody else. Nope. There, it doesn't say anything. There's no stage direction. All right. So that's all the acting and the directing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe that is really a quite brilliant move on the part of the playwright because that avoids that reaction, the audience reaction that Peter mentioned, and yet each individual audience member is imagining sure. the, the most horrible thing mm-hmm. that that they can imagine that he said to the person in question. So the other thing it was a comment about the audience. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, there's two things about the audience. Let me, uh, the first one is is that after Act One, I was out in front of the the Hudson Theater and. There were some folks who were seemingly uh, – I'm only getting half the conversation. Um, they were on the phone and they uh, – fans of Jake Gyllenhaal and upset 
because they thought this was a musical and that it seemed to be not sure. their cup of tea. They were yeah. they they thought this was a happy go lucky yeah. night, and they didn't see wow. Jake for the whole first act. Yeah, and they yeah. thought it was a music, and this was not what they thought. And uh, I think that if Jake were in Act One, they would have left. But um, but Jake is in Act Two, so I think that they stayed. I'm not sure, but I, I I'm interested to hear if uh, if folks have been uh felt misled by this thing good point good point and, and i think like i said i encourage everybody to see this i think it's really amazing and i think it you know hopefully will be remembered and do and, and at the end of the season sure, and sure. will be uh and will do well so we'll see about that and, and in the performance that i was at uh um and a very, very serious part at the end of Act Two, um, you could hear a pin drop. Absolutely true. A- absolutely. Yeah, I mean, this yep. whole thing, you could hear a pin drop yep. and somebody sneezed. Oh. <laughs> and Jake said, God bless you. <laughs> and the whole, it broke the tension and it was hysterical. And then he took like thirty seconds to get back into it. Went back into it. it. Was it was beautiful? It was great, and it was acknowledging the humanity of the moment. And and I I just loved it. And uh, I mean, I, I was so pleasantly surprised with Seawall of Life. I, I really compelled. I was compelled by it. I can't well, say it, I can't say enjoyed, but I was. Uh, I, I'm I'm sorry that I didn't make the point that you just made. Um, with even without the sneeze, that yes, that audience was so attentive mm. and hanging on every word. And uh, yes, you could have filmed a sprint commercial um, <laughs> during any part, and uh, you would have heard the pin. So um, good. I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh, even if the sneeze weren't re- <laughs> weren't a big uh, part of it. So. As What's far the... as uh, people not knowing it was a musical, I'm sorry. Yeah. That's, no, no, that's absolutely. Their, that's their that's, fault. That's totally no. their fault, absolutely. And, I mean, hasn't Jake only done two? And and wasn't one of them, didn't one of them only run for like four performances? Little Shop? or uh, <laughs> Yeah. Little Shop and Sunday in the Park, yeah. Yeah, Sunday in the Park had a run, uh, but, you know, Little Shop was like four days, right? Yeah, so. exactly. <laughs> and it was like, what was it, $2,500 a ticket? Yeah. You know, so... <laughs> It's a fundraiser, so. (laughs) Oh, I don't know. I mean, there are so many things in life that we don't know about that we don't have our finger on the pulse on, and I bet we make mistakes of that same scope. Um, And the uh, and the uh, the the album the not the album art, but the art for the the uh, window card art has Jake sitting down at a piano. Ah, ah, that I did not know. Yeah, and he does. And he does. He. He sits down at the piano and he plays at the end. But it isn't uh, very representative of the show. It's true. Oh, you're right. Here it is. Here's on the front of the playbill. It's kind of small at the bottom, but still. Yeah, I I thought he was Cole House. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Mm-hmm. So that is Seawall of Life. It's at the Hudson Theater. It's a a limited engagement. Uh, I believe that it's limited engagement because I don't think they can extend, but, you know, who knows what happens when you have a hit on your hands. Mm -hmm. So we'll see what happens with that. Uh, I think that uh, all three of us agree that you should um, stop this podcast right now and go get tickets (laughs) to it if you can. 
All right. So uh, we mentioned Little Shop briefly, and Little Shop is going to be playing at the Westside Theater coming up this fall with uh, a newly announced uh, cast beyond the Jonathan Groff and um, Christian Tammy Blanchard. Tammy Blanchard. The rest of the cast was just announced, and it looks like it's going to be a huge hit. And I don't think that there are actually tickets available to Little Shop available anymore which is also really a run. well yeah. as jonathan said when he was on the tonight show the other night there's uh, i think less than 300 seats in that theater. yeah it's uh-huh. a tiny <laughs> tiny theater i i don't know how it fiscally makes sense to do it but i think that it's kind of dipping their toe in the water for a transfer to broadway but i i, I, so. I, I don't know that uh, you know i'm just supposing that uh no i think so because it, as you say it wouldn't make any economic sense unless they i mean they're not selling uh, do are, do they have like High price premium tickets. They have. Uh, I ended up buying premium tickets because I couldn't. Uh, I, I bought four tickets because I. Uh, it's such a small theater and it's it's got such word of mouth right now that I don't think they're going to invite the voters. So uh-huh. I was like, so I was like, I've got to buy tickets to this because if I miss Jonathan Groff, my daughter and my wife will be very uh, upset with me. And if well, they give us an one ticket, then I wouldn't go to see it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt. That's an interesting question because it's uh, it's off Broadway, so it wouldn't be a case like some of the shows where they they invite only the Tony voters and yeah. not the, not all the other voting bodies. Yeah. It would have to be. I mean, if they're going to invite anyone, it would be the drama desk and the drama outer desk, critics yeah, and the exactly. uh, so the so that yeah. I sure hope I get a ticket, but we'll figure we'll we'll figure out. What's gonna, what's so gonna, yeah, they have. Uh, I, I got. Four premium tickets in the very last row of the oh theater God. for I think it was two hundred dollars a ticket or something like mm. that. Mm. Anyway, the point is was... is that is that at the West Side Theater there's going to be a hit there this fall. And right now, Peter's telling me that there's a hit there right now uh, at the West Side Theater downstairs. Uh, shop little shop is going to be upstairs, but Date Me is downstairs at the West Side Theater. So Peter, tell us about this. Well, the official title is uh, hashtag date me uh, for uh, uh, people who may not know what a hashtag is. I don't think there are many, but that means a number sign and uh, date me colon an OK Cupid experiment, because uh, this is the story of a young woman who decided to go online and decide to have 30 different profiles to see what would be out there and who would answer. And uh, this is the type of show that I really felt that I was going to be thoroughly bored at um, because I've never done online dating. I've been with the same woman for a long, long time. And um, so I had nothing in common with this show. So I fully expected to be thoroughly bored. And it didn't turn out that way at all, at all, partly because the cast is magnificent. Caitlin Black, Chris Alvarado, Jonathan Gregg, Eric Lockley, Megan Socorro, Liz Wiesen, Julian Gottlieb, and Jonathan Wagner. Uh, those um, last two um, are understudies. I shouldn't uh, include them, but I want to because I want them to ascribe to be as good as the other people in the cast to it. Uh, what an ensemble. You know, the, some organizations give out ensemble awards. Here's certainly a nomination to be had for these people. Uh, not only do they have to do the show, but there are two sections where they do improvs because they take 
uh, two people from the audience, um, at least at the performance I was at, um, it was a man and a woman, and they asked them questions about um, bad dates, uh, their preferences, things they like, uh, what they could not live without, et cetera, et cetera. And then they did an improv based on it that was phenomenal. Later in the show, a uh, similar type of thing, brought somebody up from the audience, and uh, another improv, magnificent. And at the end of the show, they actually do a song that they improv lyrics to, and uh, it was it was terrific. So um, uh, this, the show has a lot of emotional resonance because when you do this type of thing, when you put up phony profiles, after a while you start feeling bad that people are sincerely answering you and that they're um, hoping for the best. And you really start to feel for these people and empathize with these people. And um, the uh, woman who did this, um, Miss Norris, um, Robin Lynn Norris decided um, that she would never meet these people. Never, 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 never. Uh, that that was part of the agreement that she made with herself, that she would simply just go online to have an experience and maybe to turn into something she wanted to write about. Who knows? And she did surprise herself as time went on. I'm not going to say any more than that. Um, a couple of numbers. Not It's not a musical. Um, a couple of numbers, maybe three, but certainly no more than that, but effective numbers. And um, just a delight uh, for the entire uh, two acts even. Um, I think they need that intermission because um, they um, have a few stunts to do with um, the people they pull out of the audience. Um, but the biggest surprise of the season for me. Um, let's say the year because the season officially starts in June. Um, the biggest surprise of the year for me, um, cause I expected junk and it wasn't junk at all, at all, at all. May it live a long and happy life. May it get done in plenty of cities. It has a lot to say, not just to single people too, by the way, not just for people who are looking for love and affection and companionship. No, it's, it's better than that. And, um, um, a splendid time is guaranteed for all. Well, there's a lesson for us all there, isn't there? <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. Preconceived notions. Yep. Were they shattered? I mean, yep, yep. <laughs> Linda and I spent the entire intermission saying, my God, did you expect it to be this good? I mean, I, 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 I yeah, you know, so it was a lot of that. <laughs> I, you know, I, I have to admit that before we started recording and Peter said, I saw Date Me, I said, oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah. oh what a disaster. And Peter was like, no, 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 it's, it's actually really good. And so we do have preconceived notions. So yeah, uh, yeah. to see if I can get there before September 8th, because that's the official end of their run there. I hope it's not. All right. Anyway. So, all right. Uh, One more thing on um, uh, Little Shop. I actually emailed Jonathan Groff recently about uh, some the question about the show, and I, I mentioned that I saw him on the Tonight Show, and it was really charming. Did either of you see it? No, uh, no, I didn't. With Jimmy Fallon, uh, and he said uh, he wrote back, "Glad you caught the Tonight Show. Those things are so potentially awkward, but I actually had so much fun with him on Tuesday." And then he wrote, um, "Off to go sing Skid Row. See you soon." <laughs> ah. <laughs> well, well, you'll see me soon if I get a ticket. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, so um, Michael, you were over at cast party and you saw the Drinkwater Brothers uh, coming up at Birdland Theater. Uh, so. So uh, tell us about uh, the Drinkwater Brothers. Oh, it was a really fun uh, Jim Caruso cast party last Monday, the 12th. Uh, 
lots of fun people there. There, there always are. Natalie Douglas was there, and uh, Robert Fairchild was there. He didn't perform, but he was in the audience. Uh, there was a big rumor that Barry Manilow was going to come, <laughs> and so the place was packed, and then he canceled. But anyway, <laughs> uh, it's a you know it's a really great uh, open mic event. Uh, that Jim Caruso hosts, uh, and it's you, you just never know who you're going to see. Uh, but the, the but the general level of talent is so high. It's like the 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 uh, supreme open mic event you could ever imagine, just because you know of the the level of talent that that exists in the city. And it's all kinds of music, lots of Broadway, pop. Um, you know, rock, comedy, uh, every every conceivable genre of music. So I recommend going to Cast Party just, um, you know, any night uh, because you you you're likely to be very very pleasantly surprised. And it's not uh, it's not very expensive. The cover is not expensive, and it's it's basically goes from nine thirty to I would say at least twelve thirty, and sometimes beyond. But you can leave whenever you want. So it's all very informal and wonderful and great, and it's a fabulous thing that uh, that Jim Caruso has created and has been doing for nineteen years now. Uh, wow. He mentioned I I had I'm had realize quite how long it, it's been going. Hmm. Anyway, um, so the Drinkwater Brothers I mentioned, I, I first uh, became aware of them uh, two years ago, I guess, at Wagner College, my alma mater, because uh, they were they went there and they uh, were in several shows together and separately. They are identical twins, now 21, uh, and they perform together a lot. Uh, they, they both play guitar and they sing a lot of rock and pop and stuff like that. But then they also have their Broadway side and <clears throat> their roles at Wagner uh, included uh, Matt Drinkwater played Guido in Nine and John Drinkwater played uh, Claude in Hair and Carl Magnus in A Little Night Music. So they really they really can do all that. Anyway, uh, they had uh, I first brought them to Cast Party about two years ago and they were a spectacular success. So they've gone back a few times since then. And um, I decided to go, uh, they decided to go this past Monday, the 12th, uh, with their parents and, and, and I stopped by as well. And they weren't sure what they were going to sing. Uh, actually, Jim Caruso asked them to come because he had heard, again, that Barry Manilow was going to be there and he wanted to give Barry a really good show. Uh, but then that he didn't turn out to be there, but uh, they were there anyway. And so they weren't sure what they were going to sing. And then Jim was uh, talking at the beginning of the of the night and introducing people in the audience. And one of the people there was David Zippel. So I turned to Matt and John and I said, well, you have to do your nothing without me because he wrote it. He wrote the lyrics um, and they I, they had done it. I know they had done it at least once before, but it's not something that they do constantly. So they were a little trepidatious. And also John said, well, I don't have the music <laughs> and they didn't want to just go up to Ted Firth and the band and say, please play. Mm -hmm. You're nothing without me. You know, it's a little complicated. Um, so what they did was they downloaded the music uh -huh. on, on a, a cell phone and then and then. <laughs> went to uh, one of the staff at Birdland and they printed it out in the office. Wow. <laughs> and so, and so wow. then, they, yes, and so then they went outside to rehearse it a bit because they hadn't performed it in a while. They came in, they gave the music to Ted Firth, uh, and, you know, it's, it's the piano, it's always piano, bass, and drums, all these people playing 
stuff, you know, in many cases that they've never seen before, but you would think that they had been rehearsing it for weeks and weeks. Somehow they they all get together. Ted Furt's conducting, uh, you know, leading the drummer in and, you know, giving him the accents. It was perfect. And the guys were absolutely word perfect on the lyrics, which is good because David Zibble was sitting right in front of them. And the acting was great and the voices were phenomenal. And it was just this incredible, incredible success. So Jim Caruso asked them to do a show, a solo, uh, well, not a solo, a duet show, uh, mm-hmm. this this coming Tuesday at the Birdland Theater. And that's really pretty notable because he usually, um, you know, it's a new room and he he's trying to, you know, really, really promote it. And, and he likes to get names in there whenever possible. Uh, but they are really... Uh, I think these guys are really just on the really on the cusp of very big stardom. So I think Jim realizes that. And if you are not doing anything this Tuesday at uh, the twentieth at seven p.m., uh, the Drinkwater Brothers at Bird, the Birdland Theater. That's downstairs from uh, the main room at Birdland on Forty Fourth Street. Mm-hmm. Awesome! I love that story. That's yeah. really that's really great. Mm. Uh, I found uh, a video of the Drinkwater Brothers and a link to their upcoming show on Tuesday. So if you uh, are interested in that, go to the show notes at Broadway Radio. You can listen to the Drinkwater Brothers and click to buy tickets to their Tuesday show. All right. So, Peter, you got over to uh, New World Stages, is it, to see Rock of Ages? Yeah, um, being on various nominating committees, um, I had to see Rock of Ages because um, it's eligible for Best Musical Revival. The thing I want to bring up here is Mitchell Jarvis, who's essentially the narrator of the show. And his Playbill bio says he's done it 1,200 times, which means now he's done it more than 1,200 times. And I really want to shout out how terrific he is at making this performance seem absolutely opening night fresh. You really get the impression he loves this show so much. There are times when you can really feel him saying, oh, good, now I get to do this part of the show. Uh, This is my favorite part, or one of my favorite parts. It must be one of his favorite parts because he has so many favorite parts. Um, Nobody will ever accuse this guy of phoning it in. Um, It is one, and, you know, this was not a quote-unquote significant performance. This was a Wednesday night. Um, Nobody was there who was going to write about it per se. Uh, he had no idea. The audience wasn't um, full, I'll admit. Um, and yet, boy, you know, when we use figures like 110 uh, percent, we have to include Mitchell Jarvis in that because uh, to see a man so in love with the property is is just incredible to me um, after all these times. So uh, if you ever feel that, uh, well, you know, Rock of Ages must be tired by now. I'm not going to go. I mean, really, you know, I, I missed it. So what? No, no, go see this guy. Uh, the rest of the show's in fine shape, too. But go see this guy. He deserves your attention. He was in, uh, was he not in um, getting the band back together? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I think he had, uh, you know, I think he's better off back in, <laughs> in Rock of Ages. Yeah. I mean, there is no more getting the band back together, but. No. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no. Uh, Peter, you also uh, saw Billy Reese over. Did I get his name right? Reese? Yeah, indeed. Billy Reese on 54 Below, and he's got a new show coming up at St. Luke's. So tell us about Billy. Well, uh, he did a show called The Snowflake Jamboree, and what it was was a review of the songs that he's written. Now, 
Billy Reese is 21 years old, and he does have this show called A Musical About Star Wars, which he was commissioned to write, uh, which is currently playing there, and I'm going tonight. Uh, I had um, no idea that this was even playing, but I certainly um, am going because I think this uh, young man is a major, major talent, partly because he has such different ideas for songs. Um, for example, he wrote a song about there's one blockbuster left in the entire country. And um, that's where um, you'd have to go if you're interested in finding, finding Nemo or finding, finding Neverland. Now, that's a very good lyric. And uh, it's just the tip of the iceberg as far as uh, his lyric writing. Uh, he wrote um, a song about the balloon boy. You may know the story about him. And Edward Albee creeps into the lyric. And I think it's really great that somebody 21 years old is uh, aware of Edward Albee. That's really a woman who invented a certain type of mop he writes a song about, which is really good. He's working on a show uh, called Dimes. And uh, it, he did some selections from that, too. They were terrific. And this is a, a musical about a famous kidnapping. Um, it, that's the jumping off point. The person who was really kidnapped and the very um, high-profile person who um, was his father and asked to pay um, quite a bit of money, a lot of dimes, in fact, um, it, it is not referenced by name. But, um, but I am really looking forward to that on the basis of what I saw at um, Feinstein's 54 Below. I think he really uh, is the most promising songwriter I've heard in a long, 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 long time. And um, if, if he comes back to uh, Feinstein's 54 Below, or if he's anywhere east of the Mississippi and north of the Mason-Dixon line, uh, go see Billy Reese. He's really that good. Wow. Putting him on the radar screen. We're going to have to get Matt Tamanini to uh, interview Billy for uh, Water Radio. Definitely. Good. Make it happen. Check that out. All right. Uh, Michael, you got a recording of Anna Christie. So tell us about this recording. Is this something we should put into our rotation? <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, it would be a, a very unique item. Uh, I've been discuss I mentioned this recording before. Uh, this is uh, the Encompass New Opera Theater production. And I've uh, spoken about them lots over the years because they have these fabulous galas every year where they honor uh, opera and musical theater people. And they've honored uh, Sheldon Harnick, uh, Charles Strauss, Lee Adams, Barbara Cook, uh, the best of the best. But they do – I've only seen their opera work in excerpts uh, when I've gone to these events uh, where they you know, they have singers come up and, and perform excerpts of opera productions that they do. But this, when I heard of it, uh, initially uh, my ears pricked up because this Anna Christie, opera version of Anna Christie, has a libretto by Joe Masteroff, who of course is legendary for his books for Cabaret and She Loves Me. Uh, I guess primarily those uh, those two shows that he he did other work as well. But if he only you know again if mm. he only wrote those two you know if he only wrote one of those two if he only wrote one of those two <laughs> it would have been enough for a lifetime. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know so I was very intrigued by it. But uh, on the other hand, as as we've discussed, um, as I think I mentioned when I reviewed the Stonewall Opera, I, I usually don't like the music of 
modern operas because so many of them are written in a style that is so uh, anti-traditional and non, non-melodic. Uh, they're, they're often uh, very spiky music uh, with, without, um, without song structures that we're familiar with from mu- traditional musical theater type songs. Uh, so I did not expect to like the music <laughs> of this um, as much as I do, uh, because the composer, Edward Thomas, I would say writes in a much more traditional, melodic, uh, uh, old opera style, or, uh, um, uh, you know, I mean, it's more like, it would be more like Aaron Copeland or, or, or even Bernstein than, uh, than the, you know, the modern opera composers that we, that, you know, John Adams and people like that, 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 that some of us have a problem with. So, uh, so that was a, a hugely present, pleasant surprise. I figured I would listen to the recording, uh, you know, just a little bit and hear how, uh, you know, what Joe Masteroff did with the libretto, how he adapted the, the O'Neill play, you know, how he cut it down, uh, to, you know, for, op- for operatic treatment. And I enjoyed all of that. But also in in meantime, I, I'm, I really, really like the music a lot. And the cast is excellent. It's um uh, probably people mostly you would not have heard of, but Melanie Long is Anna Christie. Uh, Frank Basile is is Chris Christofferson. Yes, that is the character's name. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jonathan Estabrooks is Matt Burke. Uh, oh, and uh, the one person you might have heard of is Joy Hermelin. Uh, who has been in uh, Fiddler on the Roof and Sound of Music live. Uh, she plays Marthy. And then the other, uh, I guess the only other character is Mike Pirazzi as Larry the bartender. Uh, but it's a wonderful, wonderful recording from Broadway Records. Um, so so that's another, uh, an, another theater connection. Uh, and I really, I urge you to listen to it. Oh, and... Um, it is uh, produced by, as I mentioned when I first heard about this, produced by Thomas Z. Shepard, the legendary ca- mm-hmm. Broadway cast recording producer. Mm-hmm. So it's – yeah, I, I would say that if you have a, a fear, if you have a phobia of modern opera, as I somewhat do, um, <laughs> this uh, is a case where you where you don't need to fear. And you'll uh, give a listen to it on, online, online somewhere. I'm sure you can find uh, just little brief excerpts to listen to and if you do i think you will like it and you might be uh you might be inclined to buy the whole recording in one form or another edward thomas wrote uh, one of my favorite broadway scores with martin charnin um i guess i shouldn't say broadway because it closed in washington but mata hari has marvelous music and there is a cd that was made of that whether it's available i don't know but um unfortunately it was done with a synthesizer but if it were done with a piano it would be an album i'd listen to every day of my life um but um he really did a phenomenal job with mata hari there is magnificent music in that as well so i'm not surprised to hear that uh, this steps over from uh, modern opera territory into tune chicken hum, perhaps. But anyway, um, I'm very glad to have to hear this, and uh, that Edward Thomas is still at it. And for that matter, mm. it has been suddenly 55 years since Tom Shepard did his first album, which was Bajor. Incredible. 
Yeah. So, I mean, here he is all these years later and a great guy, by the way. So uh, it's really nice that uh, he came and uh, did this for them. And another thing that uh, Edward Thomas wrote with Joe Masteroff is a musical called Six Wives, Mm -hmm. which was done at the York. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so that's really great that they that those two got to collaborate on at, well, one, at least two things. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I think he might have done Desire Under the Elms too, an opera of Desire Under the Elms. I think they both did that, um, but I could be wrong. All right. So that wraps it up for today. Before we get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have an ep- a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it can be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. You can listen to us in many ways. iHeartRadio plays us. TuneIn plays us. Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to. Find a podcast. You can find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes. It's at broadwayradio.com, as well as links to some of the things that we've talked about today. I found the Jonathan Groff on the Jimmy Fallon show on oh, YouTube. Oh, great. Uh, and you can watch that at the show notes as well, as well as the, um, the Drinkwater Brothers uh, video as well, and all the other things that we have in the show notes for you. If you do have a moment, uh, run over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us, and please leave us a five-star rating, because that'll help uh-huh. a lot of other people um, find us. Leaving us less than a five-star rating is not helpful to anybody. If you have a problem with the show, let us know. If not, leave us a five-star rating. But leaving a less than five-star rating is just a dick move. So, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? The question was, it won the Tony for Best Book and the Tony for Best Score, but it didn't win the Tony for Best Musical. One of its songs inadvertently referred to a much-noticed and much-discussed event that happened in this past week in the national news. Understand that the song has nothing to do with the news. Its title simply suggests something that happened last week. What's the song and what's the show? Well, I was referring to the Drowsy Chaperone and the song Toledo Surprise, because on Monday of that week, we were surprised when a certain politician mentioned Toledo when he actually meant Dayton. So uh, Tony Janicki was the first to guess the show. But he assumed I meant accident waiting to happen in reference to the chaos that had happened to, to kill a mockingbird with the um, backfiring that people thought was uh, gunfire. When I told him no, he asked his boyfriend, Royal Fulton, to, and I quote, take a look at the four CDs that had won Tonys for book and score but not musical on the 20th century, Woman of the Year, You're in Town, and The Drowsy Chaperone, mm-hmm. all the while forgetting that Falsettos and Ragtime also won for book and score but not musical. Anyway, Mr. Fulton quilt quickly noticed Toledo surprise and thus qualifies for first place with an assist from Mr. Janicki, <laughs> keeping it all in the family. So following them was Deb Popple, Alyssa Marr, Josh Israel, Brigadude, Stephen Garvey, Fred Abramowitz, all of whom seem to have no problem at all with the question. Well, anyway. Uh, <laughs> the new we love question. you, Tony. We love you. <laughs> we do. You bet. Uh, when an established musical theater classic was revived this century, a new song was added to its score. The song has the same name of a film biography of two musical theater greats. What's the name of both? Hmm. All right. If you have an answer to that question, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, who sounds really great this week, doesn't he? This is James (laughs) Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. 
So it's thanks to me alone that we're not swimming with the fish. Come quick! Come help us sail the fellows! The steamer ain't got wrecked, spent a week in open boat. Three fellows and they're almost dead. They can't stand up no more. Not three fellows, more like four. This one can stand up by God. I'll tell you, I'm no lily liver. I'm no lily. I'm no. I go back to other fellas, cause they sure need help real bad. I got two men from the tideboard doing much as they can do. Yes, you'll stay with this one, but not too close. Don't stand too close, cause who can tell what he might do? I come right back, believe me. I come right back to you. 